Hello, everybody. Uh, as our panelists come out here and take the stage, I'm going to introduce myself and them. I'm Jake Silverstein. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Magazine um, and formerly was the editor-in-chief of Texas Monthly, so this is a bit of a homecoming for me and a very pleasant one. It's good to be here. Thank you for coming out early in the morning for this panel on a cure for cancer. I, I worry that maybe it was, it seemed to be false, it's going to have seemed to be, have been false advertising because people turned out for a cure for cancer, which we are not actually going to provide during the next hour. But I think it'll be interesting nonetheless. So sitting to my right is Ronald Apino. He is the president of MD Anderson Cancer Center uh, and has been in that post since 2011, correct? Prior to joining Anderson, uh, Dr. Dupino spent 14 years at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School in Boston where he was the founding director of the Belfer Institute for Applied Cancer Science. And I could just go on for about another half an hour with an introduction to Dr. Dupino with his many awards and so forth, but I'm going to spare him that embarrassment. Thank you. Uh, next to him we have Representative Sarah Davis, who is the state representative uh, coming to us from Houston, serving the district that includes the Texas Medical Center, so these two know each other quite well. Um, Representative Davis has been in the House since 2010. She's the chair of the Subcommittee on Budget Transparency and Reform, and I think importantly for this conversation also sits on public health. Um, and in her life outside the legislature, Representative Davis is a lawyer. Sitting to her right, we have James Wilson, who is the chief scientific officer of CPRID, of the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas. And he's been in that job only six months, and we are very happy to have him there. Uh, and prior to that, uh, Dr. Wilson was the director of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center's Harold C. Simmons Cancer Center, and he was associate dean of oncology programs there. He's also a practicing oncologist. To Dr. Wilson's right is a man who I think needs no introduction, one of the most famous cancer activists and survivors in all the world, former professional cyclist Lance Armstrong. So, yeah, let's give this. So, um, Lance, I actually want to start with you. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things over the next hour, and we are going to have some time for questions at the end. So do, do uh, think them up and hold them and wait till the end to ask them. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. We're going to talk about why the, the, the science of cancer and our understanding of the disease or the many diseases um, is at a, a, a unique inflection point right now and how we got there, what we, what we know, what we can do with that knowledge, um, what the prospects for a cure, as the title of our program says, actually are. But in all that conversation, what I find sometimes gets lost is the experience of, of patients and of survivors. And so I'd like to start off the conversation, Lance, by just kicking it to you to talk about your diagnosis. I mean, this is a story frankly, that a lot of people are, are somewhat familiar with, since it is a, a famous and, and story that has inspired a lot of people and many people know. But I wonder if you could just start us off so that we always remember throughout the next hour that this is a, a conversation with real human stakes, uh, what that day was like for you when you were diagnosed, when you found out that your life had changed. Yeah, I, th I think the, the, the thing about my situation was that, uh, well, first of all, it was 20 years ago, and it was just you know, literally a mile from here, um, over near Brackenridge, where I was, you know, I obviously had symptoms. I went to the doctor. And uh, at a time when, you know, the information uh, superhighway certainly didn't exist. And so, uh, but that, that's neither here nor there. The fact is that 
me, like millions of people, sat in a doctor's office and was, and was told, you have cancer. Um, and so that's the personal part, right? That's the part that, that nothing, unless you've been diagnosed before, nothing can prepare you for that, which most of us uh, sit in that chair and just get that, that punch to the, to the face. Um, but it was, it was interesting to go through the process of trying to gather as much information about the disease, my disease, and I say my disease because I think that's something that we should probably touch on. These are all so very different, right? Mm -hmm. The, the uh, people, I think, globally, they think of cancer and they think of one disease and they think of one pill that's going to fix it or one um, idea. It, 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 based on my experience, it really isn't. And so I was trying to gather as much information about my disease. I'm grabbing flyers in the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. I even went down to the bookstore. Remember, remember those? The bookstore. <laughs> and and was is, buying books on cancer. And, and this is 1996, This right? is in 1996. So I might, my actually here in about, I don't know, maybe in a week, I have my 20-year anniversary. Um, and so anyways, just trying to pull as much info, asking friends and family to ask around, right, to network and find out if you know anybody that's, that's been diagnosed. And so that just, that began the process. Unfortunately, um, unfortunately, I was diagnosed with advanced testicular cancer, but fortunately, um, Dr. Larry Einhorn and, and his team of, of doctors had focused on this disease probably 20 years before I was diagnosed and, and, and was arguably, up to that point, the greatest success story in the history of oncology. And so while it wasn't a slam dunk, it was a coin toss, um, I, I was lucky enough to uh, uh, to get you know to, to see Dr. Einhorn, be treated by Dr. Einhorn, and, and knock on wood, be here 20 years later. And and before we move on, I also want to re note that um, uh, Representative Davis, you are also a survivor of cancer. Um, and, and Dr. Depina, your father passed away from cancer some 20-ish years ago or so. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So. Uh, you know, this is obviously something, a, a topic that is of great per professional importance to all of you, but uh, it also has a personal dimension as well, and I think that's important to note. So I want to I wanna start, pick up on something that Lance said, that, um, you know, he said, my disease, the individual disease, that we often think, or maybe people outside the field often think of cancer as one thing, the cure will come in the form of one pill or one treatment option, uh, and of course that's not true. Um, it seems to me that the, one of the real insights of the last recent years of cancer research has been the kind of multiplicity of the disease. Um, can you talk a little bit, Dr. Dupino, about what it is that makes this moment right now and our new insights into cancer so important, so potentially transformative? Well, what's unique about this, the, the advances that we've made in cancer research of late? So, um, you know, just also from the personal perspective, I have to say that, you know, cancer, while we, I'm going to talk about the science, it really affects a person, it affects a family, uh, and it is an incredibly complicated disease. It's a disease that's a constellation of uh, hundreds of different diseases, and even within a particular cancer type, the amount of heterogeneity uh, is also quite staggering, and therein lies the uh, challenge. Um, at its most elemental level, cancer is a disease of the genes. You have alterations in genes that endow normal cells with the ability to relentlessly grow, invade, and ultimately kill its host. Now, we know a tremendous amount, thanks to a lot of decisive research over the last half century, 
as to which genes are messed up in which cancer. Mm -hmm. And in fact, President Bush in 2007 launched the Human Cancer Genome Project, where we've now sequenced tens of thousands of tumors, which has given us the periodic table for which genes are altered in which cancers. And that has enabled us to now develop more precise diagnostic and therapeutic strategies squarely directed against those particular genes. In addition, uh, the, the actual cancer cell has to grow in a microenvironment. That microenvironment has to be permissive. So what that means is that the host has to grow new blood vessels to nourish it. It can't attack it with its immune system. So our understanding of those processes have also matured significantly, providing us with brand new therapeutic points of attack that are directed against those new capabilities. And the most celebrated example of this is understanding how the immune system works. Jim Allison, which I'm sure every, everybody has heard of here, he's the Lance Armstrong of uh, cancer research. Jim Allison discovered a break on the immune system that cancer engages to keep the immune system suppressed. And that has uh, led to a whole new class of drugs that deactivates that breaking mechanism, reawakens the immune system, producing Lazarus results for patients with advanced disease and durable responses. So for those of us who are in the field, this is the golden era for cancer, where knowledge and technology have converged to a point that has enabled us to significantly impact uh, the disease, both in terms of prevention, but treatment of advanced disease for which there was previously no hope. And maybe it would help a little bit for, for, for people to have the era, the golden era that you just described, contrasted with what we used to do. Dr. Wilson, could you talk a little bit about how this has changed? You know, what were the protocols? What was the, how did we, you know, regard, you know, prior to, say, the, the Human Genome Project and all of the insight that we derived from that? How did we treat cancer? How did we even think about cancer? How has that changed? Indeed, and, and for me, as a practicing oncologist um, and cancer leader, uh, it's really awesome to be on the stage with Lance and Representative Davis as um, inspirations to uh, that era of, um, of empiric treatments that sometimes worked very dramatically, but all too often didn't. And what we're now seeing with the... I'm sorry, can I stop? You said empiric please. treatments. Can you explain what that means? Yes, thanks. Um, the discovery of cancer therapeutics was one of a trial and error effort. And it turned out that uh, testis cancer and, and others were quite susceptible, but many others were not. Mm -hmm. And Dr. DePino has um, articulated the new uh, frontier of, of basic research that's led to an enormous momentum of uh, new opportunities. And what's happened now in Texas is the uh, catalyst of that momentum to bring together cancer centers, uh, cancer advocates, cancer development uh, industry to actually do something quite special to move this forward more briskly to realize the potential that, uh, that Ron was just telling us about. Mm -hmm. and, and Lance, I want to come back to you for a second. You 
have been, you know, on a personal dimension and then as a sort of advocate and activist, following over the last 20 years, the, this has been a really interesting 20-year period in cancer research and, and treatment and prevention and, um, and thinking. You know, you, I think, have, in some sense, maybe the skepticism of somebody who's not, you know, uh, an actual practicing medical technician yourself. You, you know, you're looking to see what kinds of options can be produced that will help the people that you talk to, the people who have the disease, the people who are struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. How do you see, from your position, these big advances of the, of the past 20 years? Do you ever feel that, pe that they're being oversold, that, that, you know, that we're maybe not as far along as, as, as people say we are? You know, it's been interesting. I spent, so I, I've been in this fight, uh, call it that, for, for 20 years, and I, I, for 15 of those, I was fully embedded. And then for a whole host of other reasons, I, I was not so involved. And so I've, I, I've, uh, I, I've, my, my lens on this is a little different than it was for 15 years. And um, so I, I don't know, mm -hmm. I mean, these guys can talk about stuff that, I mean, all I know is what I would read in the New York Times, <laughs> which... I'm glad you believe what you read in the New York Times. <laughs> I mean, or, it means a lot to me. Or, you know what I'm saying, I, I don't have that, that in-depth uh, uh, knowledge or, or connection to the experts as, as I did for 15 years. I, I think the thing that I take away from it, and, and just having been there for 15 years and been in the business of hope, right, all about hope, and let's provide hope, and let's uh, sort of sell hope, um, I, I think is good. I, I, I think as I've stepped away from it um, for those other reasons, I, I think it's important, and I, and I don't want to be a, a, a downer here, but I, I think it's important that we also be in the business of reality. And because I've, you know, going all the way back to President Nixon and declaring the war on cancer, and then even President Bush had uh, sea change, and there, there's been these waves of and I remember spending weeks and weeks and years with Andy Van Eschenbach, who was the head of the National Cancer Institute, and, and, and the pledge that we were going to end the suffering and death due to cancer by 2015. Sounds great. I love it. We all loved it. Um, but this is such a complicated disease that, that, is, that takes such a toll on millions of people, not just in the U.S., but around the world, that I think that optimism has to be there, but it also, you also have to say, listen, this, is, this isn't easy. This is, nobody's gonna snap their fingers and make this go away, whether it's the best hospital in the world or the brightest doctor in the world or the, you know, the, a government that gives X amount of dollars or a nonprofit that raises this or, it, it's, so I, 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 I now too see it. It, it doesn't change my view that, that, uh, that hope and optimism are essential. Um, but, but I just, I want people to know that this is, uh, unless I'm t totally mistaken, you know, that this isn't a miracle pill. Sure. And I, and I, th I think sometimes, uh, the, whether it be a, the media or whatever, that perception is out there. Mm -hmm. Did you want to respond? I think just to build on this point, I think that uh, history has taught us that there are more surprises than fulfilled prophecies in this. But we have reached a significant inflection point where there is clinical proof of concept, and that's the difference. You know, that we have these hypothetical, well, maybe if we find out what goes on with the genome or understand the immune system, perhaps we're going to have durable, lasting responses and so on. But you raise a very important point. Even if 
we're able to prevent up to 50% of cancers, which is the case. Even if we can dramatically reduce the mortality due to cancer because of the kind of screening capabilities that we have, even if we could apply those decisive therapeutic advances that actually appear to cure a significant fraction of patients where previously, pre-five years ago, we could not. Um, the most important thing is access to quality care, access to knowledge. And that, to me, is one of the greatest things is that today, if we were to simply apply the knowledge that we have, we would dramatically reduce pain and suffering from cancer, dramatically reduce incidence. As I mentioned, up to 50% of cancers can be prevented in the first place. And if you get the right treatment, the right diagnosis and the right treatment uh, by experts, you can profoundly impact right. mortality, recurrence, enhance survivorship, and so on. The biggest challenge we have, in my view, because Anderson is national and international, we see what goes on across the United States and around the world, the access to quality care, the level of disparities that exist, to me, is the greatest challenge that we have in cancer, not so much the fact uh, that we have the ability to make a huge impact today without a single new discovery. Yeah. And we're but, gonna, I wanna come back to the question of disparity of, uh, you know, sort of socioeconomic indexing of public health and things like cancer. But I want to come to you, Representative Davis, um, to follow up on something that Lance said about, about hope and these different initiatives that we've been, um, that we've seen over various, uh, whether it's presidential administrations or, or what have you. Um, right now, we're, we're, uh, we're watching the vice president um, on a kind of national tour to promote the moonshot that, he, uh, that he's undertaken, um, which, you know, I, I'll be perfectly honest, I don't totally understand exactly what the moonshot is. That seems to have a lot to do with, though, with organizing, coordinating information, coordinating research, bringing together you know, whatever research is happening over here with whatever research is happening over here. And that's a role that government can play. Um, and, you know, to some extent, the, this, as Lance also said, this is such a complicated disease. I mean, it's such a complicated set of diseases um, that that kind of coordination is critically important. So, you know, you're the only person up here who's in government, um, and you come at this from a variety of different angles, but you're the only one up here who's coming at it from the angle of thinking about how folks in state legislatures folks in the federal government perhaps might be thinking about all the different balancing budgets that they have to do, the different priorities that they have to set. What do you think the role for government at the state and federal level can be in looking for a cure, in trying to stimulate a cure? Uh, well, obviously for very personal reasons, I think that the, the state government and the federal government can play a very significant role um, in, in this effort. And, and, I, and I wanted to back up just for a minute because I always want to caution when we start talking about um, genomic testing. And, and I always like to remind um, women, and some men are, are also diagnosed with breast cancer, but um, I was in fact negative for the gene and the vast majority of breast cancer diagnosis are women that are negative for the gene. So I like, I want all women to be aware that you don't I had no family history of breast cancer, and I'm negative for the gene. So I don't want anyone to, to think that there could be some false sense that if you're negative for the gene, 
uh, for, for breast cancer, then you're, you're immune from um, getting that disease because nothing could be further from the truth, which goes even further to explain what Lance was saying about what a truly complex disease each cancer diagnosis is. I'm uh, diagnosed with an aggressive uh, form of cancer called triple negative breast cancer, which um, is, is fewer in diagnosis, but typically more aggressive and has different um, treatment outcomes. So I just like to caution all women um, that just because you don't have history of breast cancer does not mean that you um, could not be diagnosed, and it doesn't matter how old you are, I was diagnosed at the age of 32. So that's sort of my public service announcement to all women out there. Um, I have to put that but in, in place. But I, I obviously think that the state has an amazingly important role to play. Uh, reviewing the numbers, uh, cancer costs Texas taxpayers $31.3 billion um, for treatment and loss of time at work, loss of income. So there's a huge economic impact that this state uh, feels because of cancer. And so that is just one of the many reasons why um, there's such a vital role that the state can play, which is, which is why CPRIT is so important, the, the Cancer Prevention Research Institute of Texas. And I know you're the expert on that, doctor, but um, it's a very significant role that we have to play. We have to have, have the coordination. And I know I get confused about um, Vice President Bin Laden's uh, moonshot program, but I like to think of it as um, the Vice President taking Dr. DePino's great idea and making it national. Because <laughs> right. that's, that's really, I mean, Dr. DePino is really um, you know, the, 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 the brains behind um, the moonshot program, which is, of course, um, the goal of curing 10 cancers in 10 years, um, one of which is breast cancer. So I'm excited about that um, prospect. But CPRD is, is vital uh, to the state, so, so much that was overwhelmingly approved by Texas voters in, in 2007. And we're at a really crucial point, not only in terms of the science, because a lot of the scientists say that um, you know, you have to have a critical mass of people and research and technology and, and proximity, which is really what we have all over the state, but in particular in the Texas Medical um, Center. But also because uh, CPRID is going to be subject to uh, the sunset process. And the originating, uh, originating legislation requires that sunset process to take place in 2021. And the legislation uh, also requires that CPRIT cease um, its granting process a year before the sunset. And so next session is going to be a very important time for CPRIT because if we're not able to extend that sunset deadline to 2023, then we are in all likelihood not going to be able to expend the full $3 billion in authority that the voters approved. So I think that it now is, is probably one of the most crucial times mm -hmm. in, in CPRIT um, in terms of, of the state's role in coordinating uh, care and, and prevention and, and discovery of technologies and, and treatments. And, and I mean, to that point, Dr. DePino, maybe I can come to you for a second. I do want to come back to the sort of origins of the moonshot, but since Representative Davis talked about the critical moment for CPRIT as we head into the next legislative session, 
Maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of CPRIT. I'm not going to, Dr. Wilson, ask you to talk about it since you're, you know, you're the representative from CPRIT. Um, with the role that CPRIT plays in kind of plugging into a, a system in which, of course, there are a lot of pressures, there are a lot of economic pressures on an institute like Anderson, you know, declining federal grants, uh, declining state budgets. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a flush time um, for, for, for these things. And so the role of, a, of an initiative like CPRIT seems to me that, it, um, that it's very significant and perhaps increasingly significant. I wonder if you can talk about what it has meant to cancer research in Texas for this, this to exist. First of all, uh, there are many more ideas, great ideas that we have that we'd love to be able to prosecute to impact the problem. So it's important for the public to appreciate that we as a nation are not doing everything we can do to convert that opportunity into things that are going to save lives, either through prevention, detection, treatment, survivorship, things of that nature. I was in Boston when CBRD was started. And the entire nation stood up and took notice. Hmm. It was a huge deal. Um, and I came to uh, Texas five years ago. And as head of MD Anderson, which has you know, pretty significant research uh, and uh, care portfolio, it has had a profound impact on the institution. Um, in terms of catalyzing research, but just as importantly, it has enabled us to bring in stars from around the country and around the world. And just one example of this is Jim Allison, who won the last, last year and is, and is, you know, the probability that he's going to win the Nobel in the next year or two is, is likely. Uh, he is the father of modern immunology. He is the person who is responsible for this new game-changing therapeutic advances and so on. The impact as a result of his presence in Texas has enabled us to get tens of millions of grants, um, many corporate alliances which have brought in additional revenues and so on. Amongst the dozens of investigators, star investigators we've been able to recruit, they've already secured tens of millions of dollars in grants. These are also entrepreneurs. They've been able to catalyze uh, several large companies. In fact, the largest Series A investment for a biotech company last year in the country uh, was, a, uh, was one that was founded by a secret recruit, uh, which has also brought in significant millions of dollars for research uh, at MD Anderson. So the impact just at Anderson, in terms of the economic impact, already is going to be uh, a significant return on investment just from an economic standpoint. But the important thing to keep in mind, which is where you started this, is it's not simply the economics, which is Im impactful, but it is also the impact on pain and suffering on patients. And there's no question already in our moonshot, which we never would have launched without CPRIT, that already has led to practice changing advances, which is reducing mortality already. So that is really the, re the big return and what, what the people of Texas want is they want uh, not just economic vitality, but they want their problems to be solved. And I, I also think it's just, and we talk about obviously MD Anderson, um, the, the most renowned cancer center um, in the world and I'm obviously I represent 
the medical center, so I'm a little bit biased, but it's important to note that CPRT makes, a, and, and you can speak to this if you'd like, a very concerted effort to focus on populations all over the state for prevention, detection, and treatment. So it's not just what's going on in Houston, but it is truly um, has as part of its mission to help all Texans um, and find a cure and prevent cancer for all Texans from El Paso, um, you know, East Texas to the Valley, all parts of Texas. Indeed, and um, to pick up on the impact on MD Anderson, think about that magnifying across now four ecosystems for cancer discovery throughout Texas in Dallas now, San Antonio, and as you say, uh, West Texas, and it's that catalyst of new um, uh, investigators, clinicians, but also building the infrastructure for both cancer research and outreach. Two new NCI, National Cancer Institute, comprehensive cancer centers in this state uh, in the last two years. It's an unprecedented accomplishment uh, for any state. Those are in Dallas and a second uh, in, in Houston and emerging uh, similar stories in other large medical centers throughout the state. I think it's going to be an enormous legacy of, uh, of what's been catalyzed. And I want, to, I want to come back to something that you just said, Representative Davis, which is that, um, you know, CPRID is focused on bringing prevention, preventative improvements and advancements and treatment options to all Texans, and obviously that's important. Um, I wonder if maybe we want to sketch in a little bit of the backdrop of this conversation, this sort of larger topic about healthcare in the state. Um, we, I think, have the largest population of uninsured in Texas, 17-ish percent of, the, of Texans are uninsured, which is higher both in terms of the percentage and I think also in terms of the raw number than any other state in the country. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, I, but for, for years, of course, education was the number one line item in the budget and now healthcare is kind of neck and neck. Um, and those healthcare costs are really hockey sticking. And of course it's a zero sum game as well. The money has to come from somewhere. So that's a problem. We have a problem. We have a healthcare problem in Texas. And we also don't have enough doctors. So even if we did have greater coverage, we would have that problem. So that, that's a kind of a backdrop maybe for right. when we talk about bringing preventative care improvements when it comes to cancer, when we talk about a cure for cancer, how do you, within a system, that has so many people that are falling through the cracks, so many people that just aren't getting any kind of healthcare uh, treatment. How do you bring these breakthrough advancements that we're talking about up on this stage to that whole population? That, I mean, breakthrough advancements is probably going to be a, a topic that maybe Dr. DePino might be able uh, to discuss a little bit more in depth, but in terms of access to care, I mean, uh, I don't think anyone would argue that we have a serious problem in this state with folks um, having access to some basic primary um, care services. I think over the last couple budget cycles, we've really devoted significant resources um, to that, especially in terms of women health, women's health and cancer screenings. I think we're $260 million in the last two-year budget um, to make sure that women are um, able to get um, some well woman exams, but it certainly is um, it is a problem and that uh, has a very large political backdrop uh, so <laughs> uh, as, 
healthcare, like with everything, um, is very is very political. But I think that the state um, has demonstrated its commitment um, to wanting to be able to provide um, access uh, to care. But we are confined by the constraints um, of of the budget and. You know, with the economy slowing down, especially in the energy sector with oil and gas, we're looking at an even tougher, I think, budget cycle going into the next session. Um, but uh, one of the sort of uh, shining stars in the economy, of course, is the growth in the healthcare industry and, and, and the biosciences. And, and Texas is, is, is really, I think, leading that. And I, I, I do think you have just a large uh, population of leaders, whether they be elected, presidents of universities, of hospitals, that are really um, committed to making sure and doing everything we can to, to provide access to care. But I think you get on a, on a point that I'm very passionate about, which is on um, the, the just this, the basic lack of physicians, mm -hmm. you know, we, we we can have discussions about Medicaid expansion, which I know is is probably you know what, where you're going, but <laughs> if we put a, an insurance card in the hands of every Texan right now today, um, there's not the physicians that can provide the services, and I believe only 37 percent of Texas physicians are even accepting Medicaid patients, so. The answer is not just we must expand Medicaid, but if we don't have that physician base to provide services, which we don't even have currently, um, you know, putting an insurance card in someone's hand is not effectively going to give them access to health care, which is why I'm a big proponent of increasing our GME funding, which is something we've been working over, working in the House on the, uh, for the last two sessions. So, Dr. DePino, since Representative Davis asked the question um, about whether or not Medicaid should be expanded, I wonder if you can approach that from a preventative care and public health perspective where, you know, you're concerned with decreasing mortality when it, as it relates to cancer and, and related diseases. I mean, how important could that be, expansion of Medicare, of Medicaid, uh, trying to decrease that 17% number of, of uninsured Texans in terms of those issues? There's no question that uh, enactment of policies that increase the ability of individuals to come into the healthcare system so that they can engage in health care as opposed to reactive disease care when it's very expensive and late is a good thing. The, of course, the question is how do you execute that, right? And as was mentioned, uh, the ability to actually handle the magnitude of the need isn't there. And so what the healthcare system is really moving towards, uh, if we want to create that healthcare as opposed to disease care system, you need policies that are going to enact that uh, through the kinds of uh, things that would increase coverage. Uh, but as importantly, you really have to deal with the fact that you don't have the healthcare workers to deal with the need. What I find particularly interesting is the ability to take advantage of um, technology in part, uh, you know, having uh, things like IBM Watson to be able to um, empower individuals with knowledge to prevent the disease or catch it early or go to the right place. The entrance of uh, retail, uh, such as CVS, Walmarts, Walgreens, coming into the system providing more simple preventative interventive type of care and then going to 
uh, your hospital system for more advanced uh, capabilities. But there's also the fact that we can and are doing a tremendous amount already. Um, there is an enormous amount that we are doing on the prevention front, on the policy front, and on the education front. Just one manifestation of this is that when I got here five years ago, smoking rates in uh, Texas were 19%. Last year, it was 14.5%. Five years ago, as a state, we spent $12 billion in tobacco-related illness. It accounts for 30% of all cancer deaths, 20% of all deaths. $12 billion five years ago, $8.85 billion last year. That is a multi-billion dollar stimulus to the economy, single, single issue, right? Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years back, we worked with the legislature to have uh, tanning bed uh, bans for kids under the age of 18, which is a major cause of melanoma decades later, so on and so forth. So policy right. uh, has a big impact on the underserved, uh, screening services, you know, and where we have all these screening uh, efforts throughout the state, enabled by CPRIT, big impact. Uh, and then the treatment access remains an issue. We've got to figure out how to have purposeful allocation of need throughout the healthcare ecosystem. So we empower the individual with knowledge to take care of as much as possible on their own, and then have the retail system, community services, and ultimately, you know, major care centers like in Anderson to deal with the most complicated of issues for, um, for the whole ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, if 50% if of cancers are preventable, which is a number that I've been, that I've heard, I mean, not, <laughs> having no children in tanning beds, I did not think that would be a controversial bill. <laughs> um, but of course that was, but, um, you know, having parents, um, vaccinate their kids for HPV. That's a that's a that's a very important thing um, that our pediatricians are not doing enough of. So there's a lot of preventative measures: smoking, tanning beds, HP, HPV vaccines that really can have significant impacts um, and um, are, are not expensive in terms of what they cost to the state, right. or to the Medicaid program, those are policy driven. I mean, obviously HPV vaccine has a cost, um, but there's so much more education that needs to be, uh, I think, uh, done on the HPV uh, vaccine. And, and Dr. Wilson, I wanna to come to you. So, you know, we're talking about levers, essentially, that can affect public health, um, and in particular cancer and, and smoking and, and, you know, de decreasing the rate of, of, of Smoking is obviously a, a big one. Exercise, diet, chronic stress, we know that all these things can, can be, you know, again, levers. Um, these, all of these, those four that I mentioned really kind of index pretty directly against socioeconomic status. If you're poor, you might live in a food desert where, you know, there's no grocery stores. You're not gonna be able to eat the kind of healthy diet that, you know, uh, that, would be, that would be a good preventative measure. You are certainly, if you're poor, gonna live with a lot more chronic stress than, uh, than if you're not. So as we see, see an, increase, an increasing amount of income inequality in this country, is there a danger that we're also gonna start seeing a much more kind of uh, you know, healthcare inequality and just flat out health inequality, right? That the, that the insights that we're having about how to prevent a disease like cancer 
are going to be you know, uh, in, unequally distributed amongst the population. And I wonder if you can answer that just in the context of Texas. Well, absolutely, that as this conversation has emphasized, cancer um, is influenced by external factors as well as uh, internal inherited uh, predispositions. And, um, and to the point of, um, of socioeconomic discrepancies, uh, absolutely, there are going to be challenges that are unique to different groups within our society. But we see that actually across the spectrum of, uh, of socioeconomic groups. For example, uh, we're much better fed than we were two decades ago. And as a consequence, um, we're seeing an increase in obesity-related consequences that um, actually not necessarily um, a socioeconomic factor, but something that's pervasive across. So uh, one of the points in addition to policy that I think we need to continue to be aware of is how to implement what we already know. The Representative Davis and, uh, and Ron have told us of, um, of steps that have already been taken that have had magnificent impact. But there's just so much more that we can do. And I think this is one of the areas where research is going to be very important, to really understand how to impact on tobacco use in, uh, in certain um, groups, young, uh, young adults, for example, um, how to impact on obesity in certain groups that are more susceptible. And I think this is where the investment in research and uh, outreach is, is really very, very important. Mm -hmm. I, we have just about maybe five more minutes before, <clears throat> before we open it up to questions. So if you have questions that have been percolating, start to get them ready. And I want to try to use that time to come back to the current state of both cancer research and what our knowledge is about it. And, um, and Lance, I want to come to you. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that with the advances that we've had in recent years, we now have more, more cancer survivors than at any time in history. Is that right? Correct. So there are more people out there who are survivors. And rising rapidly. And rising rapidly. And Lance, you know, over time, your foundation really began to focus on survivorship. I um, mean, you know, I think at the beginning, maybe there was, there was a sort of more broad effort to fund and help and support research and other, you know, aspects of cancer care. But really, over time, Livestrong came to really focus on, on survivorship. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, with these rising numbers of survivors, uh, what you think some of the kind of key um, roles or the key the key forms of support that can be that can be provided for that that community are and, and what role you see uh, is, you know private institutions like Livestrong playing in that I mean I think it, I mean we focused on that because it was uh, while the, while the organization uh, grew and raised more and more money we were still a relatively small organization we were a uh, at its height, we were raising 40 or $50 million a year, which is a lot of money, but we felt like we could do a couple of things. One, we could focus on survivorship, which was near and dear to my heart because I was diagnosed, I was treated, I came back to life, and I had, you know, fortunately I was given, you know, the ability to still compete, I was given uh, the ability to have children, all of the things that, uh, you know, I think when people are diagnosed, they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But they get on the other side of it, and they're like, no, no, that, it's not, it, it's important. So uh, we could, for a relatively small amount of money, we could focus on that. And at the same time, we could invest 
Uh, I mean, Prop 15, I think we invested, I don't want to say we invested six or $700,000 to get, to help get that passed. Mm -hmm. And when it was all said and done, uh, uh, with a $3 billion bond initiative, we, we felt like, and at least I felt like, we just gave a $3 billion grant. So a $40 million organization just gave away three billion. That was our view of yeah. it. And so, just to be clear, fit Prop 15, CPRIT, the 2007 right. so that proposal. Prop 15 uh, created CPRIT, which is the Cancer Prevention Research Institute of Texas. I think probably at that time, the most important word in there was prevention. I think mm -hmm. that's something that we can all agree is not nearly as sexy as lab coats and petri dishes and microscopes, but it's, it's there and it's real. The other interesting thing we did, and I just want to bring this up because you're, we were talking about tobacco, is we tried to do the very same thing in California. So two years later, we went to California um, and tried to get, and, and oddly enough, they're trying to do the same thing right now, is raise the price of a pack of cigarettes by $2. And two things are for sure. One is that is the number one uh, detriment to young kids, to people. If you raise a pack of cigarettes two bucks, kids just don't make that, they don't make that leap, right? And so we tried very, very hard, and, and then, you know, with the proceeds in a great state like California, with great institutions like we have here in Texas, they would reinvest that money at, at, at these great hospitals and research facilities. Uh, I just read the other day that Big Tobacco is going to spend $70 million to defeat this measure. 70 million. When we tried to do it two years after CPRIT was created, we, we were begging and scrapping and fighting. We got, I think we got a million or two to try to, to try to get this passed. Big Tobacco spent 60 or 70. You just can't win. And so that's, 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 uh, that's another issue, but it was frustrating. And, and so th those were the things that we, that we tried to focus on uh, back then. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that while we didn't create this whole survivorship movement, um, people way before us and way better and smarter than us came along and realized that this was, as science evolved and, and, and more and more people were being put back into the world, into homes, into work, into, um, into society, they had issues. And they, and they had things that um, some, some of those issues were more significant uh, and some were more minor. Doesn't matter, I mean, people, uh, people needed those services. Yeah, I actually thought the, the survivorship part of my treatment was was probably some of the hardest because mm. you, and I don't know your experience, Lance, but you get this diagnosis, your entire world changes. You, I spent a year in treatment, surgeries and weekly chemo and, and daily radiation, and then it's all over. Your whole life has been journaling everything. You know, what did I eat today and how did I feel? And then... They say, okay, you know, go home and live your life. And it's really hard to figure out what that, what that means after you do get home. Um, so I, I think the survivorship, that, that was some of the most fearful times, those months after I finished my treatment. Because I sort of, I didn't have time to be too afraid during my treatment because I, was, I always had something scheduled, a blood draw, a transfusion, you know, something going on, and then now, okay, you know, figure it out and, and go back to normal. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's, you know, the, the survivorship yeah. is a really important component. And it's not only for you as a survivor, but for your families, because, you know, your families also just think like, you know, they've been there with you, they've seen you, they've taken you to the emergency room, they know what you've been through, but it's over now. 
So go back to the old Lance or to the old Sarah. And, and you don't know what that looks like at the time. I, and I don't it takes want to go back to the old while. Lance. What's that? I don't want to go back to the old Lance. I'm good. But I always, I always look at it as, as the cancer continuum, right? And you have to look at all of these yeah. things. You have to look at prevention. You have to look at early detection. You have to look at access to care. You have to look at treatment, scientific and medical research, survivorship, and then end of life. So all of these things, I think, are, you know, research is the one that, I mean, if you're going door to door and trying to raise money, yeah, I'm raising money for this. It's so, we, I mean, it was, we, we, we suffered from it at Livestrong because we would say, oh, well, we're in the advocacy and, and navigation and survivorship business. And the, and the person on the other at the, that opened the door is like, well, what about medical research and scientific research? Mm -hmm. That's so easy to raise money for. But when you start talking about the other six or seven cogs in the, in the cancer continuum, people are like, prevention? But it's so important and so critically important that you can't, if you neglect that, you kind of, the, 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 the chain breaks. And so, um, I mean, it's been interesting to, it was interesting to live through uh, to that rise of, of, of just, and, and watch people's reaction to, um, you know, to what is appealing, to what is quote unquote sexy, to what's easy right. to raise money for. So um, we're going to kick it to questions, but I just want to end with a, a kind of look at the landscape, right? A, a, a final view of the of the current landscape, and there's going to be a couple of dimensions to that. One is um, we we were talking about the increasing rates of survivorship. There's also an increasing. There's a lot of demographic changes underway right now. One of them is the uh, the aging of our global population. Our global population is getting older, much older, much faster than ever before which of course means that they're much more susceptible to diseases such as cancer. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the challenge that presents, but, the same, but also maybe try to sum up where we are now in terms of our hunt for an actual cure for this disease or this set of diseases. And we are, I believe you, I've seen you on, on other panels say that you think that we're, we're much closer than, than people actually believe, I think. Well, uh, first of all, the magnitude of the need is uh, only going to increase. By 2025, we're going to have 1.2 billion people over the age of 60 worldwide. Every five years, the incidence of cancer doubles. By 2030 in the United States, we're going to have a 45% increase in the incidence of cancer simply because of the aging of the U.S. population. Age is the most important instigator for the development of cancer. The aging process itself causes cancer to take hold. And so that, that's an important uh, issue that we're facing. So we need to do everything possible to bend the arc of those, th that uh, incidence. And so um, one of the things that gets me very excited right now is not simply the medical research uh, but getting back to the access to knowledge to, to really impact the public health, uh, today we have, we've never been more connected than we are. Cancer's greatest vulnerability is knowledge. If you have knowledge of what actually causes cancer in the first place, that can lead to you modifying your risk for the development of cancer. If you know what you should be doing to screen for cancer, also important where to get treated, survivorship, all of those things are now, you have access, everybody has access to this. So information technology, smartphone connectivity, cognitive computing systems 
are going to profoundly impact that knowledge gap that currently exists uh, so that the individuals, everybody, is going to be wearing wearable devices. Uh, cognitive systems are going to be monitoring your physiology and telling you what you should be doing in real time, not just for cancer, but for diabetes, hypertension, and a variety of other things. I think there's going to be a tectonic shift in our ability to really empower the public with that kind of knowledge. Those same systems are going to allow us to close the knowledge gap with other providers. You know, if you're at a quaternary care center like MD Anderson, uh, which 70% of the patients we see are from elsewhere, from the rest of the United States around the world, you know, we see the level of uh, inaccuracy of diagnosis. One in four diagnoses that come to us are inaccurate. We see the differences in survival statistics at a place like ours versus others where not, they're not specializing in cancer. That is going to be leveled with our ability to disseminate the knowledge, close that knowledge gap, and so on. But make no mistake about it, when, uh, you know, millennia from now, when people look back on this period of human history, it is going to go down as a major turning point. And when you look at the big picture, the most important thing that's happened probably in the last 100 years for who we are was the discovery of the genetic code in 1953, Watson and Crick. That is going to go down as a critical turning point for who we are. Now, in the ensuing time, you know, when Nixon launched, we were just beginning to think about what actually causes cancer. We didn't yet know that genes caused cancer. Mm -hmm. That's how ignorant we were. We didn't have that visibility. Uh, when Andy von Eschenbach made his statements, we didn't really understand how to harness the power of the immune system. What's changed completely is the fact that we have a tremendous amount of actionable knowledge. That knowledge has been converted into new drugs, and we have clinical proof of concept now years out that patients who had advanced disease and no hope are now have no evidence of disease. Uh, you know, that uh, with Jim Allison's drugs, some of those patients are alive 15 years out that were on their way to hospice. So this is truly a game-changing time. But there is a tremendous amount that we still need to do. So right now, we have proof of concept that the knowledge we have of the genome and the immune system is providing us with the ability to truly impact the problem, assuming you have access to those healthcare opportunities. The challenge for us is still the research that we need to close that gap so that, you know, not just the majority, the 50% of uh, patients with melanoma appear to be cured by these uh, immune, Im immune therapy drugs. We want to make that 100%. So pushing that uh, curve, that cure curve up is the major challenge. We don't understand when that will come, but make no mistake about it, this decade and next will be viewed in much the same way we view the 1930s with antibiotics or the 1950s with polio vaccine, which changed medicine forever and change the ability of us to impact infectious diseases in ways that we could uh, not you know, imagine. Uh, and I think that we're at this huge turning point in cancer uh, at, this, uh, at this particular time. Over the next two decades? I'd say over the next two decades, we are going to significantly raise uh, our uh, ability to treat advanced disease and not just 
eliminate the disease but preserve the quality of life during survivorship. It's not enough to cure, you have to also preserve the quality of life. So um, that was such an interesting response that I've, I've gone over some of the time that I had allotted for questions, but we do have time for a couple. So if you have questions, uh, believe that there are meant to be uh, microphones in the aisle right here. Um, yes, here we go. So as I said, I think we have time for a couple. panel um, and I very much appreciate all your work and hope to see a lot more of you who've done incredible work in the past and look in the future. Uh, I'm Steve Amos. I'm a nonprofit health code really focusing on population preventive health. Interested that if you say that 50% of cancers can be avoided, why aren't we hearing more about preventive activity? I hear that act, being more active can play a key role wonder why and what we can do more in the area of preventive actions. Well, Maybe we'll I just do, just since we only have time for a couple, we'll just do one answer per question. How's that sound? So, so I think, you know, you need, and it's represented here, you need policy, you need education, and you need scalable services. You need laws such as raising, you know, tobacco uh, taxes, smoke-free. You need education so that we can teach kids you know, prevent what causes uh, certain diseases and start with the, with the right kinds of habits. And you need scalable services so that you know, indigent, impoverished, et cetera, as well as all of us have access to the right kinds of services. Those are the three major arms that really can significantly impact uh, the prevention problem. Uh, and it's important to appreciate that the sorts of stuff that Lance did to really raise awareness of disease is really profoundly impactful. You know, he talked about the tobacco issues. If, the, if Texas and the amount that uh, the marketing and so on from the tobacco industry, if Texans really understood what they're paying for, uh, the non-smokers are paying for the, the habit. You know, we, it cost us $12 billion a year, as I mentioned earlier, uh, five years ago, well, we only got 1.6 billion in tax revenues. So all of us are paying for the delta of that. And so these are all issues that awareness of what actually are the issues for um, prevention of disease and how we can go about the right mechanisms to go about addressing those are, in my opinion, the greatest near-term opportunity to really reduce pain and suffering, but also impact the economics. And I would just add, too, that there is obviously a high level of personal accountability. I mean, the government can't be responsible for dictating what foods that you eat. Um, I mean, you know, we live in a limited government-free uh, country, so people have to be accountable um, for their own actions and the, and the choices and the decisions that they make. And as a legislature, we can we can guide in some of those policies, especially as directed to children, um, prohibiting minors from tanning beds and limiting uh, or in, you know, increase in the age in which um, you can buy uh, cigarettes, trying to replace sugary drinks out of schools. Um, but at the end of the day, the majority is on you. You, you have to be able to make uh, responsible decisions for yourself. I'm afraid we have time for just two more questions, and let's make them quick. Thank you. Marina Lewis from San Antonio, and I represent most citizens, I think, who 
have within their family circles and friend circles someone affected or who has had cancer. And I want to direct this uh, question about pharmaceuticals and what part they have in controlling the kind of treatment that people get because um, we recently lost a very good friend, my son's godmother, who started with a diagnosis of endometrial cancer in San Antonio and moved her treatment to MD Anderson. She went through two rounds of chemo and related treatments. Um, there was a surgery involved and they found that she also had bladder cancer. Because of the diagnosis of two cancers, she was not able to participate in the clinical trial that she was supposed to take because, as I understand it, pharmaceuticals will only deal with one at a time. So could you address the pharmaceutical role in the actual treatment today? And she did pass away last August, or this last August, uh, last month, after two and a half year treatment. Thank you. Jim, you want to take that? Yes, I think that um, you point out a very serious flaw in the paradigm for drug development. And indeed, my colleagues at UT Southwestern just in the past year looked at this question, not in endometrial cancer, but in lung cancer, and found that um, previous uh, history of another cancer uh, had no real impact on the overall either response to therapeutics or um, or, or the uh, longevity of the individual. And so um, I think there's really good scientific evidence um, to suggest that that does not have to be a disqualifier for, um, for a drug development trial. And hopefully um, some of the uh, research that I've just referred to will help to influence um, FDA and others uh, that the industry is responding to. So thank you for that important point. Okay, last question. Okay, so I have a question for Representative Davis and kind of Dr. Pino. So as a student, a pre-med student at Shriner University, I've been very fortunate to be a member of the JAMP program, which is the Joint Admission Medical Program. Um, and so basically, I get very good financial aid through them, and they help me prep for the MCAT and help me get ready for med school. Very, very great program. But there's only 80 of us going into JAMP. So with that, and you're looking at the numbers of doctors going in, 5,500 in Texas. 80 of us have this JAMP opportunity. That's 1.5% of medical student population. So my question is, do you have any way of offering more help to students who don't have that socioeconomic background to become doctors? And then it's kind of got a second part. Um, you talked about the 37% that accept Medicaid. Do you do anything for schools or regulate any way that doctors have to accept Medicaid? Um, a lot of doctors go in thinking that it's all about the money and that they don't have to do anything else. And that's why they don't accept Medicaid, typically. So do you help your doctors understand that it's okay not to be all about the money? Is there a program for that? Do you train them, train them in that way? Um, because I know a couple of students in the JAM program that they've already said, I'm in it for the money and that's it. And I go in and I'm like, I want to help people, but you know, there's always that different aspect of why people go into helping people. So that's a great question. Those are terrific questions. I mean, first of all, um, Anderson is extremely mission-oriented, uh, and so we don't really think about um, the financial uh, aspects of caring for patients. We um, take care of many impoverished, underserved, and in fact, we staff uh, LBJ as just one example. 
uh, which is a, a safety net for the Houston area um, and so on. And, and much of the stuff that we're doing, we're in 24 countries around the world. We're in different parts of the United States in some of the most impoverished areas to try to, because we know those folks can't come to MD Anderson, so we're going to them uh, to really try to improve the quality of care uh, for, for many folks throughout, throughout the world. So there's a lot of what we do is really mission-oriented as opposed to uh, you know, these financial issues, but it's important for us to be financially solvent, otherwise we can't continue with our mission. On the training standpoint, MD Anderson has almost 7,000 trainees. We have a whole spectrum of um, educational opportunities that enable uh, folks like you to be able to impact uh, the um, healthcare challenges that we all face. And it really does take a village. The opportunities in education beyond specifically medical school uh, are also quite significant. We have a school of health professions that trains individuals um, that are uh, gonna be manning all the laboratories and doing genetic counseling, things of that nature, et cetera. So for, for the young people, what I'd encourage them to do is to really explore all of the things that you could be doing to really impact the problem. There are so many things beyond medical school. You can contribute scientifically. You can contribute in policy. You can contribute as an educator, uh, so on and so forth, through foundations, et cetera. There are so many things that one can do uh, that could profoundly impact uh, all of this pain and suffering that we talked about over the last hour. And as a state add? appropriator, I, I appropriate money to the University of Texas at MD Anderson so that they can have those missions. Excellent. Well, thank you for that last question. And most of all, thanks to these wonderful panelists who have led us through this conversation for the last hour. Really appreciate uh, all the work that all four of you are doing. Thank you.